Now, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We have three passages today. We're starting with John 15, verses 9 to 14. This is from the ESV. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now we move to 1 John 3, 16 to 18. <clears throat> By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then one page over from there, 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Vance. Well, church, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. The psalmist asks the Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And this morning, we're considering the subject of care. We all walked in here maybe with an idea of what care is or what it might look like. We've all given it or received it in some form, but I'd like to submit to you this morning that care is the foundation, the essence of our Christian lives. Truly to be a Christian is to care. And an uncaring Christian is an oxymoron, it's a contradiction of terms. So through the lens of these wonderful passages that Vance read for us, we're looking at three kind of macro aspects of care. And the first we're looking at is uh, care as it's founded in God, then care as it's displayed uniquely by the Savior and finally, care as it's lived out by the church. That's where we're going this morning. 
But if you would pause again with me to pray to our Lord for his help. Father, you are the God of all, and your mercy is over all that you have made. In your wisdom and in your love you created, and in your loving kindness you sent Jesus, the Son, to bear the wrath of many. Lord, we pray that you would allow these words from your scripture to penetrate deeply in our hearts that we might be transformed into Jesus' own likeness. Help us, Father. We need your spirit to guide us and direct us. So, Lord, be with our time. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's briefly define our terms. What do we mean by care? And that word can refer to a lot of things, right? We have health care, urgent care, Medicare, child care, lawn care. Some of you grew up watching Care Bears. Uh, don't admit that. If you, but when we talk about care, we are thinking biblical love. You know, care and love really are interchangeable terms. And when the Lord, for instance, commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, he's not calling us to have a mere feeling of love from our couches, right? But to, to actively care for our neighbors in the same way we care for ourselves. So care is that active part of love. If love dwells in the heart and the mind, care dwells in the hands and the feet. And care, it's got that sense of compassion. So often in the Gospels, the writers record that Jesus' compassion for the multitudes, that's what moved him to teach them or to feed them. And that word used for compassion in the Greek refers to a deep inward yearning of sympathy or pity. That's what drove Christ to care for people. And that right there is a crucial aspect of this conversation on care. Because where did this compassion of Christ come from? Why was he inwardly yearning for these lost and suffering people? And here's a simple answer. Jesus is God, and God is love. We're familiar with that phrase in 1 John 4, 8 there, God is love, can be confused. So what does it mean? Well, it's not simply that God performs acts of love, which he certainly does, or that he chooses to love his creatures, which he also certainly does, but that love is inherent to God's very being. It is his essence. Love didn't come into being the moment God said, let there be light, or even let us make man in our own image. God God didn't create just to have something to love or to be loved by someone. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is love. The Godhead has eternally existed in a perfect fellowship of love in himself. Theologian Joel Beakey, he writes this, he says, God's love is of himself, It does not arise from something outside of him, but it is God's very life. Consider that. He says, love permeates God's attributes and harmonizes with them all. So his holiness is a loving holiness, and his love is a holy love. And while human words strain to describe the love of God, it's reasonable to characterize it as a self-giving love. Each person of the Godhead has forever sought to bless and nurture and honor one another and enjoy one another in the fullness of God's own loving communion. So God's not just the author of love, but he embodies perfect love in his nature, and he has so eternally. Love naturally flows out of him because he is love. And someone could object a little bit right there and, and ask, well, that, you know, that sounds great, but how do you know that's true apart from like a blind faith? 
And it's true that we don't have a way of knowing what God's like or what his love is like without God revealing himself to us, which is why Jesus' words in John 15 are so crucial. He says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've modeled to you the very same love that I have known firsthand from my Father. So every interaction with Jesus was a front row seat to the majestic love of the Godhead. So what, what would it have been like, just if you think for a minute, what Jesus, to watch Jesus' demeanor with people, to watch him embrace the leper, to see him put his hands gently onto a blind man's eyes to heal him, to witness his welcoming and blessing little children, to marvel at his gracious words as he taught, to perceive joy on his face, to peacefully walk with him from place to place, to watch him protect the adulteress from her persecutors, to see his patience with those who despised him. Imagine hearing him say for the first time, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The God of the universe, his very being, he is gentle, he is meek, he is humble. Imagine Mary Magdalene's experience. She recognized her risen Lord just by his saying her name, Mary. She recognized him by his tender kindness and his gentle love toward her. Jesus was never repulsed by the repulsive. He never scoffed at the ignorant. He never shamed the immoral. No, he moved toward them. He spent time with them. He laughed with them. He ate with them. He befriended them. That was the one accusation that was true of him, that he was a friend of sinners. And Dane Ortland writes that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. And Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he says it plainly as well. He says, Christ is love covered over in flesh. He's the image of the invisible God the exact imprint of the Lord's nature in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Therefore, we can only know the love of God as we see it displayed in the Savior. So again, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And this word we know came the evening before Jesus would demonstrate God's love in its fullest glory. He said, greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. It was John who heard this from the lips of Christ and who'd watch him that next morning be poured out in his sufferings. And even in his agony, Jesus continued his care for his persecutors, for his mother, for a criminal, never reviling his accusers, never silencing those who mocked him. He remained on his splintered cross until all of God's wrath was satisfied and salvation's work complete. And that's why John, 50 years later in his epistle, he says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath satisfier, for our sins. All our conceptions and our understandings about 
love have to be centered on Christ, his person and his sufferings. The world has its ideas about what love is or what it should be, right? But if we want to know real love, which we all do, we fix our full attention onto Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, whose very name means God the Almighty saves His is a love that sees our hatred of him, sees all of our hopeless, willful bondage to our sin, our perversions, our secrets, and he wants to lavish his mercy onto us. He wants to pour out himself even to the point of a shameful death for us so that we might have life with God. We would know God, his freedom. We'd know his joy. And John says, this is love. This is love. Now here's the rub. As Jesus also said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And why is that the rub? Because it's tough. It's often really tough. You know, believing is the easy part, right? It's easy to come and say, yes, amen, sing wonderful songs, head out to London. That's all the easy stuff, right? But caring for one another is costly. It's always costly. And it can be intimidating. So it's easy to kind of talk ourselves out of caring for one another, right? We can say things like, well, this is too messy for me. Maybe someone else can handle it better, you know? On top of that, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I'm too busy, I have a lot going on. Um, I don't know what to say in this situation. I've never experienced what they're going through before. I don't want to let somebody down if I do it poorly. Um, I'm not a counselor. There's all kinds of things, right, that can come in our minds and intimidate us. And the truth is, caring for people is intimidating. It is. It's difficult. And we've all likely said these things to ourselves, but our care or lack of care for one another can also be revealing. If we keep neglecting to love our brothers and sisters, we can move from intimidation to apathy. And we start to think things like, you know, well, nobody's really cared that much for me. I haven't really seen it in my life. Or, you know, maybe if they stopped making bad decisions, they wouldn't be in this mess. They're kind of getting what they deserve. Or we think, I I worked hard for this stuff that I have. I've earned this stuff. I take care of it well. I don't want to have someone else borrow it or have it. They won't take care of it like me. Or maybe just, I, I say something like, I have a hard time being around person X. Or here's the worst one. I don't care. I just don't care. I see the need. I could probably do something. I don't care. All these fears and attitudes toward people are revealing, and here's what John says they reveal. He says, if anyone closes his heart against a brother or sister who's in need, how does God's love abide in him? Anyone who does not love does not know God. We can believe all the right things, know the soundest of doctrines. We can take people to task on those doctrines, but we do not know God if we do not love his church. Christ did not give his life for us to have a right answer for God at the end of our lives. You know, you've probably heard the question, if if you were to die today and stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And while I understand the nature of that question, That's not what God will ask at the end. God knows those who are his. What he'll say is what Jesus describes of the end at the final judgment 
in Matthew 25. You're welcome to turn there if you like. I opened up right up to it. Wow. You're familiar. Jesus says the nations will be gathered before him. Some people will be on his right and others on his left. And to those on his right, he'll say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we do all these things for you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll turn to those on his left, and he'll say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For he says in summary, You did not minister to me in my time of need. And they'll say the same thing. When? When did we not do this for you? When did we not minister to you? Thought everything was fine. Thought we were doing great. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to, the, to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Has this all of a sudden become a works by, you know, salvation by works message? No. These righteous Jesus speaks of here have been born of God. And how do we know that? Because they cared for the least of these. It came so naturally for them, they weren't even aware that the Lord was commending their care. Because when a God of love, by the power of his Holy Spirit, replaces a sinful heart with Christ's heart, that person begins to have his compassion for the least of these, even enemies. That's what John means when he says, whoever loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. What kind of a love is God? He's a love that delights to see someone else's joy. A love that's merciful. Doesn't hang on to petty offenses or run at the first conflict, but it's postured to quickly forgive. It's a love that no longer sees people as burdens, but is willing to take on their burdens. It's a love that doesn't manipulate or control, but esteems others more highly than themselves. It's a love that protects, provides, encourages, leans into the struggle, absorbs the pain. It's a love that weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. And this is a natural love for Christ's followers because it flows from the one to whom they belong. Are they perfect at it? No. But this love nonetheless dwells in the depths of everyone born of God through Christ. And they will strive to care for others out of that Christ-like compassion the Lord has blessed them with. What about this church? What about us? Many of us don't really need people to feed us or clothe us, right? We don't visit us in prison, those kind of, that's a grace from God, praise the Lord. Caring for each other, though, is, is more than meeting physical needs. And I would say, though we have most of our needs met here, we are among the most needy. Many of us experience crippling anxiety every day. Some of you are struggling through that with your kids. Others of us are lonely. After church, you know, you'll see all the families packing up kiddos, big plans for the day, and you're going to go back to an empty, quiet house. 
Some of you feel like you don't have any close friends to share your life with, and so weekends are lonely. Many of you I know are in a season of caring for aging parents or you're caring for family members who can't take care of themselves. This is often more than a full-time job and very taxing. People aren't always sure how to help you or you can't find the help that you actually need. These are the kind of caregivers that a lot of times aren't aren't even aware of the physical and emotional toll this takes on their well-being. Many of us have lost loved ones recently some years ago, and we're still burdened with heartache over that loss. You sift through pictures, thankful to God's grace of them in your life, but wishing they weren't just memories now. Some of us have kids who've walked away from Christ. They're arguing with you about things you thought they once believed. And that's no small thing for a parent, it's agonizing. Some of you have been slaving at work, maybe slaving in ministry and you're burning out. Others of you are waiting for test results. Some of you have those test results and they're not great. Some are in constant chronic pain and you've not been sleeping for months. Others of us quietly nurse addictions, sexual addictions, food addictions, drug, alcohol, and it's straining your relationships. Some of us have marriages on the rocks and nobody knows about it. Couldn't even guess if they tried. And others of us are just one more trial away from giving up on God. And I'm talking about our church family. We need to be cared for as much as we need to care for one another. But I think when it comes to giving or receiving care, there are at least two temptations we face. And the first one is this. We're tempted to handle it ourselves. Most of us don't want to appear needy, being cared for by someone else, no matter what the situation makes us feel inadequate. It's kind of an admission that we can't do it. It's too vulnerable, so it's easiest to just struggle quietly or try to take care of it ourselves. And a congregation like ours runs a big risk of this because we have incredibly competent people here, which, again, praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But it can also be problematic this is you, if you're struggling because you don't want anybody to help you or know about what's going on, you're habituating a dependence on yourself, which can either puff you up with pride or exhaust you, or both. And worse than that, this subtly pulls you away from the Lord and intensifies the struggle you're in. There's not anyone to bear this Because part of the function of God's people is to come alongside you and bear your burden. That's a great blessing to them, no matter what it costs. And by refusing help, you're withholding the ability of your church family to bless you. You're like my oldest daughter, who's not the most affectionate. You know, when you go and try to snuggle with her, she's like instantly pushing you away. And I'm just like, let me love you. Like I'm trying, just come on. Let the church love you, right? Let the church love you. You don't have to bear anything alone. None of us do. We have each other. So that's the first temptation, just to handle it ourselves. The second is this, to retreat. Think of the culture's impact on relationships the past 20 years. We've been trained to post pictures and videos of ourselves to get likes from other people, many of whom we don't know from Adam. We're all glued to our phones everywhere we go. Uh, I'm guilty of that. And the last two years, we were taught to see people as disease spreaders, to stay away as far as possible. Not to mention, right, there's 
a divisiveness in our country that is just at an all-time high. It's thick. This all has a sizable impact on our relationships, on our socialization, on our ability to relate with one another. And I think people are now used to a sort of retreating from relationship. We look for safe relationships. You know, the ones that don't get too messy or deep or personal, and we just enjoy that for a little while. But if there's a mess, if there's a quirk, a flaw, or especially a conflict, we retreat. We either sever ties or we distance ourselves. But as Christ followers, we can't retreat from people. We have to learn how to lean into that mess rather than run. The closer we get to each other, the more chances for disagreement and conflict. That's true, but it's also okay. Paul Tripp wrote a book that's uh, worth the cost just for the title alone. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And in it, he writes, what happens in the messiness of relationships is that our hearts are revealed, our weaknesses are exposed, and we start coming to the end of ourselves. But, he says, weak and needy people finding their hope in Christ's grace are the, what mark a mature relationship. That's what we all want. That's what we're all after. It's just hard to get it. And so Tripp asks, well, what, which relationships are most meaningful to you? Most likely the ones working through difficulty and hardship. And that's true. The strongest relationships I have are those I've fought for in the trenches or those who fought for me. And quite frankly, those I've fought with. <laughs> because as we work it out, our relationship deepens and strengthens, or at least it should. And it's the ones who know my weaknesses and flaws and quirks and uh, awkwardness and all that comes with me, and they love me through it. They love me through it. And those are the bonds that are impenetrable. Those are the bonds we want. We persevere together through whatever it is so we can show Christ's gracious heart to each other. So though it's hard, what we really need is to be known by one another so that we no longer see each other by our political views or our poor choices or our doctrinal differences. Because when we know each other and we're known by one another and no one runs away, we remind each other, we show each other Christ who knows every part of us, every part, and he didn't run away. He offered us rest in our souls in him. And that's what we have to do for one another as well, to be a place of rest for the soul all this brings us to a final question, a fitting one. You know, who cares? <laughs> who cares about all this? Why can't we live a Christian life without the people in it? You know? <laughs> when we care for one another as Christ cared for us, we see God. We see God. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, I wasn't sure he was a heretic, but now I know because Scripture's clear. No one has seen God and lived, and that's true. <laughs> Not the heretic part, hopefully, but 1 John 4, verse 12, right? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. What's the implication? No one's seen God, but they can. If they see him in us, because he abides in us. You may have noticed Jesus isn't here. Not here. After his resurrection, Christ ascended into heaven to be with the Father where he now reigns as our victorious king. Praise the Lord. 
But the spirit of Christ, the spirit of love, the comforter as he's called, was sent by the Father and the Son to dwell in us, the church. He has made his home in us. That's how Jesus put it. The very presence of God lives in us now, so whenever anybody looks at us, they should see God. Not that we are God's, but that we are God's ambassadors, his representatives. We believers now function as the physical presence of God on the earth. That's why we're referred to as Christ's body in Scripture. We're made up of many diverse parts. The Spirit bestows his gifts, yes, but it's so that we walk in love. And go further, that the nations would know our God of love in Christ. That's his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus' own prayer is that the church would demonstrate the love of God in him. We are being built up in love for God and for one another. That's been true of the church since Pentecost, throughout the ages, and this present day. They will not know us by our flawless doctrine. They will not know us by our righteous, squeaky clean lives. They will know us by our love for one another. And most importantly, they will see God, who he really is. And let me encourage you, my family and I have been a part of this congregation going on 20 years now. And we've seen God here and his love here through countless many in this church family. Uh, many of you know uh, we have a special needs daughter who wasn't supposed to live when she was born. We were in and out of the hospital a lot. And this church family prayed for us, visited us, fed us, asked how we were doing, clothed our little preemie baby, kept checking in. And I'll never forget calling my pastor at the time and asking if the elders, just a few of them, could come and, and pray with me. And I was expecting that maybe two or three would show. All of them came under a half hour to the Cleveland Clinic downtown just to sit with me and to pray and to weep with me. And almost all of them are sitting in this room. But it hasn't only been in those times of crisis, right? I've, whenever I've had low points in my faith or I've struggled with sin or I've just needed encouragement, I've found it here in my brothers and sisters. I've been discipled here, admonished here, challenged here, been through peaks and valleys here, and I've seen Christ. I've seen him here through the lives of my brothers and sisters. Are we a perfect church? That's not the case I'm making. No, we're not perfect. But this is my church family who I love and has loved me and my family well. This is how we see God. We see him and enjoy him as we bless and serve and care for each other in every season. That's the point. That's the point of caring for one another. We're not just meeting needs. We're not just building a community or some legacy. We want people to be drawn to the love of God in Christ Jesus. We want them to taste his goodness from our words and our hands and our feet. We want Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith that all of us together being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What about you? Are you in a place where you need brothers and sisters to care for you? Maybe there's a sin struggle that finally needs to come into the light. Maybe you're in a season of life that's become too burdensome. You know, whatever it is, 
Trust God's care for you through his people. The church is equipped by his spirit to minister to you deeply. Maybe you're in a place where you really don't have a lot of compassion for your church family. And you need to ask God earnestly how you can grow to love your fellow believers as the Lord loves them. Don't ever forget what it costs your Savior to demonstrate his love for you. Maybe you're feeling compelled to reach out to somebody you know that could use your encouragement or your help. Um, Trust the Spirit's leading in that and, and do it. Be a blessing to you and to them. This is what we want for our church family. We want to grow in caring for one another and being cared for by one another so that our communities take notice. And not just that, so that we might know God and enjoy him more richly together. That people would be compelled to trust in the God who is love. Because there's a day coming, right? There's a day coming. We'll be together seeing the loving Lord face to face. And we'll know the riches of his eternal love for us, his children, in Christ Jesus. Praise God. So beloved, as God has so loved us, let us love one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, you are love. Your faithfulness reaches to the heavens. Your righteousness are as the mountains. Your steadfast love is infinite for your people. Lord, I ask your spirit to meet us where this is needed. Help us, Lord, to turn our hearts in affection toward you first. Remembering that you first loved us so that we might love one another. I pray, Lord, that we would live out this great call to bear each other's burdens, to absorb blows, to walk in grace and forgiveness for one another, no matter the cost, because that is what we have found in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to be compelled by your love so that we might live for you and walk with you until that day when you will glorify your name, present the church to yourself in splendor, holy and blameless, forgiven, pure, righteous, just as Jesus is, pure, holy. We, we thank you, Lord. We need your spirit. We need help in this. We praise you. In the good name of Christ, we pray.